How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Did you tell? <laughs> I almost fought through it. I almost fought through it. I didn't do my voice exercises before well, this time. you know, I tell you, it shows sometimes, but it still has a unique... Oh, my gosh. That was a frog. They would call that a frog, right? Yeah, that was a frog. I had a frog in my throat, you and did. I realized it right when I started the introduction. That was... It, and I could see that in your eyes. You're a real should broadcaster I, now, Mr. Stiles. Should I have pulled back and cleared my throat and started over? No, I think it was great. I think because it was live, you, was you live. go. I feel very happy about it. I do. <laughs> I told you about that. Oh, Sorry, buddy, I'm gonna stop. No, don't. No, I won't. I won't. I won't. But that no, it was, I, you really you you powered through that. I think I actually cleared my throat while I was doing <laughs> it. <laughs> I think that. I'm surprised that there isn't like Louis on the microphone I was right say now. That, well, thankfully know? there's a screen here now. Yeah. yeah. Sorry if they're running out there called Louis. Um, so yeah, so, how's the week been? Great, fabulous, yeah. fantastic. With with that in mind, talking about you know gratitude, I have an amazing guest here tonight, and I'm very grateful that you are here as well, Don Marks, Doctor Don Marks. I arguably, maybe not that arguably, I think one of the best neurologists on the South Shore of Massachusetts. Wow, so, yep. that's a big statement. No, but it's true. So welcome, Doctor Marks. It's nice to be here, Dr. Joe. Ah, and Mark, I have to say that uh, the PanMass Challenge is about writing for the disease cancer and uh, Alzheimer's disease, which I'm going to be speaking about, is the cancer of the 21st century. Mm. And because it's older people, we don't ride. We just have Alzheimer's walks. Yeah. But <laughs> it has more or less the same goal. And, uh, the cancer of the 21st century. Yeah, That's I mean that really so far as cancer was one of those things which people didn't want to talk about because there wasn't much you could do about it 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm. And so if you can't do something about something that's deadly, maybe we don't want to talk about it. Once it became treatable, it's a very different story. I remember when I was young, I'm 69 now, I remember my father died of cancer at age 42 in 1968. There wasn't much that could be done. Right. Mm. A little bit of cobalt treatment, that was it. So it was at the time we don't talk about it. Now we do talk about it. I'm hoping that the same thing will happen with Alzheimer's disease. I think we're already well on our way. And that's part of what I wanted to get on the radio about. For the last 25 years or so, I've been telling my colleagues as well as patients that we really need to move forward about the diagnosis of this disease. And one of the pushbacks was, well, okay, but what can we do about it? Mm. We had some medications, still do, that help treat the symptoms to some degree. Sort of like if you had polio and your knee buckled and we gave you a knee brace, you could walk a little better. It wouldn't do much for the polio. And at this point, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for a drug that might have some true disease modification effects, meaning it changes the course of the disease, much as chemotherapy and other treatments might alter the course of cancer, not just treat the symptoms. So, about... June 7th, 
there was an announcement that the first drug was approved by the FDA for the for altering the course of Alzheimer's disease. This is after a very, very stormy course. And actually, the stormy course up to that point looks tame compared to the storm that's ensued. The problem is that the drug was approved in a very odd way. It's called aticanumab. Uh, it was, it's manufactured by Biogen out of Cambridge, and it was approved for the management of Alzheimer's disease, all Alzheimer's disease. The clinical trial, the studies that were the basis for it being approved were not done in all people with Alzheimer's, but just people with very mild forms of the disease. So a couple weeks later, they decided, oops, maybe we better walk it back, and they changed the indication to just those people with early disease. Now, in addition, going back to the cancer analogy, which I'm, I'm sort of glad that it had the segue it did because cool. it's very apropos. Um, the FDA decided 25 years ago or so that when you have a tumor, that most tumors express proteins on their surface which get discharged into the blood, and that you could measure the amount of tumor indirectly by measuring the amount of these proteins in your blood, called a biomarker as opposed to measuring the tumor itself. The idea being, if you wait a few years for the clinical trial to be done, a lot of people will have died in the interim. Right. So the idea is how do you get it out faster, but intelligently and meaningfully. So what they decided was to use biomarker changes as the basis for approval of cancer drugs. Fast forward 25 years. Now they decide with Alzheimer's they're going to do the same thing. There's a protein called beta amyloid that builds up in abnormal quantities in the brains of people who are destined to have or already have Alzheimer's disease. And the idea was if you could give an antibody, these engineered monoclonal antibodies, that would pull out the amyloid, that hopefully that would alter the clinical state of the patient. In other words, their mind would be better or at least get worse less quickly. Yeah. So what happened is that these drugs, this drug, this class of drugs, does get rid of the amyloid, the beta amyloid, very nicely. But the clinical trials upon which the approval were based, was based unfortunately did not demonstrate as robust a clinical response, meaning that it gets rid of the biomarker, if you will, but did it have an actual effect for patients' well-being? Hmm. And the answer to that is murkier. And so there's been a firestorm of those of us involved. I was involved in the drug trial for the, for the drug, still are in a follow-up trial. But the question is, was it good enough to have approved? In addition, it's $56,000 a year. Wow. The Alzheimer's Association had gun for it being approved. Uh, they were not happy about the price. Uh, and so there's a lot of discussion. And for me, as someone who's involved in clinical research since the 1990s, one of the more chilling aspects is if you have a bunt sing uh, single, uh, uh, do you end it there? And so if people say, well, we have nothing, it's better than nothing. You know, I had a second cousin who died of leukemia when she was 10. I was 12 at the time. And a year later, they came up with the first drug that was useful for, le for leukemia. And it, it saved about 20% of the kids who had leukemia. Mm -hmm. But if it had stopped there, then the nearly 100%, there's a few exceptions yeah. now, uh, that we never would have gotten there. Right. Let's, let's go back over some of this because there was a lot of information, a lot of some technical terms that people might not completely understand. But, but let's, let's go back to the basics. What is... Alzheimer's well once you know tell me and we'll go to Stockholm there we go uh, the current hypothesis and to emphasize it's a hypothesis meaning that it is a reasonable description but without complete proof uh, is that there is an abnormal amount of this protein in the brain called beta amyloid that is associated with people who either have or are developing Alzheimer's. 
the ways of measuring it are somewhat difficult. Mm -hmm. I, w I want people just to understand what protein is because we're not talking yeah. about like steaks in your brain. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's you know it's 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 hard when uh, this is a radio show and I'm trying to get some basic information out there. Right. It's so hard because these are all long discussions. Right, I mean, right. if someone needs to understand what a protein is in and of itself, that's a significant that's true, discussion. That's true. That's true. But, but in essence, the, the proteins are sort of like the little machines in our body that get things done and, and tell parts of our cell to do other things. And then there's this, this protein called amyloid. And what happens to that one that may result in people having memory difficulty? So we think it's the trigger, sort of if you think of it as a gun, the trigger is the amyloid, and the bullets are another protein called tau protein. Tau, T-A-U. T-A-U, the Greek letter tau, that's right. where it comes from. Uh, amyloid is a Greek term for starchy, and it has to do with 150 years ago when they used to stain cells. It, it, it had starch-like characteristics. Yeah. Cool. But anyway, uh, I mean, each of these terms has its own sort of interesting medical history. Right. But... The uh, tau protein, if you think of the old cartoon, the Jetsons, uh, yep. and for those of us old enough and for those of us otherwise, there's Nickelodeon or whatever is the current dun, dun, way. Dun, dun. Anyway, there was these tubes where they would go uh, racing through space, and they were held up by little girders. Well, if you think of the little girders as tau protein. Okay. So you have these microtubules akin to the Jetsons tubes. Right. Micro meaning little tubes. Little tubes. Okay. Uh, uh, can't see them. They're way beyond, way below our ability to see them. Huh. And the products that the cells need to talk to each other, called neurotransmitters, are transported up and down. The food from one end of the cell to the other is moved down. The garbage is moved in and out. So, so cool. once the microtubules fail, as the tau protein pulls away, because they get polluted with little side chains on them that cause them to fall off the microtubules, then they they clump together. It's called an aggregation and then they poison the next cell in the connection of the network of the nerve cells. And so the idea is that if you can prevent the amyloid from triggering, the, the excessive amyloid from triggering the next step of tau falling apart, which actually destroys the cells and is the basis for the cell death, it's more complicated than that, but for purposes right now that's sufficient, that if you could prevent that further step, then you can prevent the disease from progressing. So how do you do that? That's the... How do you do that? That's can the we have Nobel the Prize question right there, Mark Stiles. Exactly. So there is... There, the, the focus has been to get rid of the amyloid for a long time. In other words, put trigger locks, if you will. Yeah. The problem is if the six-shooter has been fired four times, putting a trigger lock may have a limited benefit in terms of the remaining two bullets. Right. So we've sort of proven that getting rid of the amyloid too late in the disease, which is not necessarily advanced disease in terms of how people are operating, but uh, biologically what their brains look like, um, is it, it just doesn't work. So, so once it's unhinged, it's Well, once the trigger is fired, yeah. then it's too late. So the idea is to try to block the triggers earlier and earlier. So this drug that was just approved, think of it as a trigger lock for people who have mild symptoms of dementia yeah. and mild cognitive impairment, which I'm going to come back to in just a moment. Okay. So uh, the next step is to look at people who have a high amount of amyloid, which they may have for 10 to 20 years before they have any symptoms. And to find those people, particularly where there's families with a lot of Alzheimer's because they cluster for reasons that are complex, and the idea is to try to give those anti-amyloid vaccines to get rid of the amyloid in people who are pre-symptomatic, no symptoms. So that's the next step of what we're looking at. In addition, people are saying, 
we've played out the amyloid hypothesis well enough and what we need to do is start looking at things that block tau so even if the triggers are pulled can we block the bullets from doing further damage mm. so that's you, you, the basis you, you of things. You use the phrase anti-vaccination yeah. yes, why, why do yes. you call it that? Yeah it's it's somewhat of a misnomer uh, a vaccine is really a way as we usually mean vaccine it's a way of training our immune system to recognize foreign proteins such as virus capsules with, uh, with COVID uh, to be hyper-responsive when they see those proteins and, and destroy them. Uh, in, in the case of Alzheimer's vaccines, it's a little different. These are passive monoclonal antibodies. What that means is in a test tube, they create antibodies against the amyloid protein. And then they give you an infusion, an IV infusion, so that you get a large dose of these um, antibodies. And they grab onto the amyloid trigger your own immune system to start chewing it up because when an antibody grabs onto something mm -hmm. that's a signal for your immune system to come in the goon squad to come right. in and wipe it out right do all sorts of things and, and basically eat it up with these right. giant macrophages macro large phage eaters that's right right so so we are now looking at at modulating an immune response to prevent or at least treat Alzheimer's? Yes. Uh, proactively. Proactively. It's, it's, uh, you're using the immune system uh, in, in a controlled manner. Uh, I don't think the emphasis is so much on that. That's pretty straightforward. It mm -hmm. has to do with picking the right antibodies yeah. and at the right time. But I want to go back to something. Uh, look, the, the problem with Alzheimer's right now, uh, among many, but is, is acceptance that it exists among the general population. Uh, acceptance by primary care doctors to even look for it. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why that's not happening, which I'll go into in a moment, but um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia are not the same thing. Very important for folks to understand this. Dementia is simply a functional description. It means that you have a brain which is not working well enough that you cannot function independently in ordinary life, mm -hmm. in your usual life pursuits. You can get dementia from multiple head injuries, multiple strokes, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis. There's a huge list of causes of dementia. It just means you can't function autonomously anymore. So, de so dementia is the description of a symptom, like a cough, right. but it doesn't tell you why you're coughing Correct. or why you have dementia. This is just the symptom. It's a description. Right. A description. It's a description of function. Right. Now, Alzheimer's is by far and away the most common cause of dementia in the United States for people who are elderly, but is by no means the only one. Now, before you get dementia, you also can have what's called mild cognitive impairment, MCI, not to be confused with the prison system. <laughs> and MCI means that you are not the way you were, but you are not bad enough to where you can't function autonomously anymore. So that varies on what you did. If a college professor suddenly can't figure out how to give lectures, but they're still able to manage their affairs at home, technically, they have mild cognitive impairment because they can't do their usual function. Mm. So it's a bit murky, but it has to do with your baseline level of function, whether or not you can, you've lost that or not. So, so I've heard that college professors who have that, they, they've lost their faculties. They have. Sorry. They have. They have. No, that's the dean. I'm sorry. Yeah. Can, can I ask I, you a I'm question? Stop. Sure. I, I, I'm a big fan of being proactive. Proactive medicine, That's proactive right. law, everything. Do it in advance and you'll be happy. You said something about 20, 30 years. Is there a blood test or something that people can take to understand where they are with these beta amyloids? Yes, uh, that's a very hot topic right now. Um, the um, There are blood tests that are being developed. There's one that's FDA approved. It's about $1,100. 
um, uh, not cheap. And uh, we're but worth it if you find out that you have it and you can and if you have a treatment. Off, right? See, until June seventh, it was like, well, that's nice, but what are we going to do about it? Right. Now you have to validate. What that means is that you have a gold standard of of what everybody agrees is a positive test, and yeah. you have to compare new tests to that to see if it's equally valid. Well, that's science, right? You're always exactly. making it better. So we're working on the validation. When I say we, I mean thousands of people right. are working on the validation of new blood markers, and it may be that the blood markers are a screen that your primary care physician can do, and then if it's positive, then it get re gets referred further on to specialists to try to deal with this. Now that's part of the problem, is that there's just not enough specialists to deal with this. Yeah. Uh, the population of Alzheimer's patients in the U.S. is estimated it's approaching 6 million, it's around 5 million now. Hmm. There's only hundreds to a couple thousand neurologists who are trained in neurobehavioral technique to serve all that. You do the math. And so how do we make this screening occur and then how do we take care of all these folks? The determination and the nuance of treating folks uh, with these newer classes of agents that can alter the disease course are complicated. But that there actually may be now a medicine that could work? Yes, there is a medicine that works at worst marginally, at best a little bit more than marginally. As I said, it's a bunt single. Yeah. And the point is you can't stop with a bunt single. Right. So where do we go from there? That means getting people engaged in clinical trials, volunteering mm. to be in trials. If you're the child of someone who uh, has had Alzheimer's uh, from a parent or a sibling and you're over the age of 55, there are national clinical trials. We're involved in, in one of them uh, uh, that are looking at people who have evidence of the abnormal amyloid protein we talked about but have no symptoms yet. And the idea is to see if we can prevent it from ever progressing. Yeah. These medications, by the way, do not change what your behavior is now. Whatever damage is done is done. The idea is to try to slow down the progression, not necessarily even stop it, but slow it down. I don't know, maybe you live another 20 years and you die of terminal baggy skin. Mm. But, you know, the <laughs> point is is that is to try to, to extend it out. I mean, that's what cancer goes. It's, uh, I mean, you may not, quote, unquote, cure it, but if it's kept at bay till you die of something else, right, okay. Right. It's true. It's, it's so many chronic illness, like yeah. diabetes as well. You know, you're yeah. just trying to keep things under control. Right. Um, we had a, a call in, actually it was a text from, uh, from Paul Zani, who actually was a director of some of the psychiatric hospitals I worked in. He said, how, how are people meant to afford this? You know, if they're on Medicaid, how do you afford over $50,000? That's going to be out of pocket, right? No, Medicare is working on it. Uh, look, in the United States, under George Bush II, it was uh, decided that Medicare could not negotiate for price. In every other country of the world, there's negotiation for price. The U.S., through the NIH, which funds most research through universities and through our pricing of drugs, supports drug research for the entire planet. And this is a political issue, and it's difficult. In Massachusetts, you know, the major teaching hospitals make money off of doing research. Mm. And so if you cut down the research dollars because you try to drive down the price of the drug, it cuts both ways. Mm. And so it's a, it's a thorny problem, but obviously a lot of us are hoping that this may be the tipping point. It's finally the drug that is expensive enough and is used by enough people that there's no way that they can't finally come back to that fundamental problem. So Medicare right now, there's 10 regions of Medicare across the country called MACs. There's an intermediary um, 
agency that negotiates for the region. And each of the MACs is separately figuring out how they're going to handle it. Medicare has a select committee trying to figure out how to deal with this. It gets more complicated because in order to diagnose the disease, we don't have a blood test just yet. So you have to either do a spinal tap, which is not as nasty as it sounds, to look at the for the amyloid, or a very expensive nuclear medicine test called a PET scan. Mm-hmm. And the PET scans run four to 5,000 out of pocket. Medicare did a study a few years ago, we were involved in that as well, looking at whether or not it was beneficial to do an amyloid PET scan to help with diagnosis. It clearly was. It's not paid for. Medicare, I am told, from what I've read in the last week, is reconsidering paying for amyloid PET scans. That's a huge amount of money for Medicare. In addition, these drugs can cause some temporary swelling in the brain, usually no symptoms, but you have to monitor it and adjust the dose based on that. That requires multiple MRI scans. Who's going to pay for that? It's an extremely expensive proposition. The drug trials cost 2 to $3 billion each because they're very complicated looking at all these factors. So it's a great question, and there's not a, an immediate answer to it. All of us are feeling our way through this, trying to figure out who should be on the drug, who should not, who we would encourage to be in a, in a drug trial. And it's what we call shared decision-making. It's not my decision to make. It's a discussion or discussions that we have with patients and families trying to decide the best course of action. How close do you think they are to a blood test that we can go into our primary care and draw some blood and, okay, you got some amyloids, let's go get the Biogen drug and stop this from happening? Well, see, it's, it's unfortunately a little bit more complicated yeah. than that. We have to first validate, as I mentioned earlier, that the blood test is analogous to what you see in the brain, and they're working on that. The answer to your question is perhaps two to three years. Good. Um, um, unless the science stops. Unless, right? unless well, the science chill. isn't going to stop on that, but the, the, the fact then remains the primary care doctor should not be in the position of ordering this. So who does? That's the problem, is that it should be people who have some experience doing this. And and I'm saying that not out of a uh, means of maintaining business, but just in terms of taking care of people. These are, uh, primary care doctors are overwhelmed. The yeah. best I would hope from a primary care doctor, putting aside uh, what you just said about a blood test, is part of Medicare's annual wellness screening is you have to do a mental status exam. Right. A lot of them don't, some of them do. And the idea is if you see a, 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 an inkling of cognitive impairment, they usually send them to us right. to take further. Got it. Right. So you make the referral and then they take a, yeah. a deeper test. But we're dealing with this right now at a national level. This week in Denver is the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. It started as a little tiny conference about 20 years ago. It's huge now. And because of COVID, it's, uh, it's a virtual conference. And so instead of all people from around the world who couldn't afford to come to these U.S. conferences, now there's tens of thousands oh, of excellent. people listening to it. It's an yeah. extraordinary conference. So in real time this week, there was heavy discussions about some of the questions that you're asking. Awesome. And so it's, it's in very much in real time, which is part of the reason I asked Joe if I could be on the show, because this is not just speculation anymore. This is really happening. And so because of my involvement in the research, I, I see myself as being a bit of the spearhead in terms of our region of getting the knowledge out. That's yeah. very exciting. Yeah. June 7th. Yeah. That was a big day. Big day. And they had delayed it by 90 days and 180 days yeah. because the FDA didn't know what to do about it. The independent advisory panel of neurologists said do not approve it. Really? The internal committee of the FDA said they would. Why? Why was there an For the reason debate? that I told you, that there's uh, the anti-amyloid... That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> but I already answered it. <laughs> I already answered it, damn it. <laughs> no, no, actually, uh, no, that is the core of it. And, and what it was is that the concept that 
getting rid of the amyloid, the biomarker, didn't necessarily, based on the evidence that had been produced, correlate well enough to say it has clinical benefit, okay? Mm -hmm. In other words, people were saying, yeah, it's great, it's a biomarker, we need to do a little bit more, we don't have enough data. So what, what we makes... Need more, we more need more uh, tests. What yeah. makes this medicine different? Because there have been medicines that have been out there for Alzheimer's, or at least to slow down the progression. Why, what's different about this one? The medicines that have been out there have not been to slow down progression. Okay. What they do is they treat symptoms. And okay. to go back to what I said earlier, if you had polio in your leg, and you, you, when you went to stand up, we're on video? Yeah. All right. Okay. So, WATD listeners, I will make uh, the announcement. You'll do it. Okay. Don Marks has been standing up. So, say okay. you have polio in this leg and you go to walk and your knee buckles and you can't walk. Yes. And I give you a knee brace and now you can walk like this. Did I fix the polio? No, you just. I just gave you a functional benefit from right. the brace. Now, let's say the polio goes to this muscle that moves your ankle. So now your knee is a little stabilized, but now your ankle gives out. So you're still getting worse, but you're better than you would be if you didn't have the knee brace, even as it progresses. Mm. Okay? That's called symptomatic benefit. That's not disease modification. So for we've had oral drugs since the late 1990s that have been good for symptomatic relief. And what, what are the symptoms that they're relieving? They help with attention, focus, memory. They, they're said to be memory drugs. What they really do is they enhance attention and concentration, which indirectly leads to better memory. If you're more in tune with your environment, more aware of it, more engaged, then you're more likely to retain information. Like an ADD type of drug. So, yeah, in a way. It, it's, it, unfortunately, it's somewhat different than that. Okay. It, it's, 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 uh, you still have a fundamental problem with the formation of memory and the ability to go back to memory yeah. but in a sense you're right that the the if your focus is better then you have a better chance of getting it in but unlike an ADD patient where their memory is working pretty well they yeah. just can't sit still long enough to get it in yeah uh, this is both you have a problem with sitting still to get it in and attending to it but you also have a problem with it being deposited in your memory how painful is it for the patient to try to go back and capture that memory for some people, it's extremely painful, and they have what we call a catastrophic reaction. They get very emotionally distraught. For other people, as Ronald Reagan, who had Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. said, there I go again. So there are people who have a sense of humor and self-deprecation, but unfortunately, the disease affects different parts of the brain differentially in different people. Mm. So you can have what's called executive dysfunction. The frontal lobe systems don't work as well in particular, although it's more complicated than that. But the, the fact is, these folks don't know that they have a problem. It's ah. called cognitive anosognosia, not knowing that you don't know. That's hell on wheels for families. Very difficult. Mm -hmm. Difficult to get those people to medical treatment, difficult for families to cope with it. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of subsets. There are people who have very good executive function. They are socially with it. They appear normal on the surface, but you ask them to draw the face of a clock and it, they can barely draw a circle. So it affects different parts of the brain in different people. So in a sense, it's probably not Alzheimer's disease, but Alzheimer's diseases. And it's, it's, it. it's, it's a, we tend to lump it together. I suspect over the next couple of decades, we won't see it quite the same way. So we may, may be able to tease them apart. This yes. one's this, this one's that. And the but thing by then it'll be gone because we'll have had it all figured out by then. Well, it's it going to take a while. There's also going to be a bolus of people who are far enough along. So even if we found a quote-unquote cure that stopped it dead today, yeah. you're still going to have a lot of people who will continue to progress uh, yeah. and, and for the next couple of decades. So, Dr. Marks, how do people uh, get involved in these trials? First of all, you need to acknowledge there's a problem. Mm. And 
normal aging is a term which probably is not all that helpful. Uh, I take care of 95-year-olds who are probably sharper than I am. That might be more common on me than them. But the <laughs> point being that uh, it's not inevitable that you have forgetfulness in the way we normally think of it. It's just that it's a very common disease. At the age of 85, one-third of all people in the United States have Alzheimer's disease clinically. Hmm. So wow. it's extremely common. At the age of 90, it's one in two. Wow. So when a 90-year-old says, well, a lot of my friends are forgetful, I go, yep. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> which means that there's a one in four chance that a couple will both have it, Wow! which is hard on the kids. Wow! So the reason to be in a clinical trial, I, I found that the greatest generation who were the people mostly in the trials early on, although that's moved on, I'm mean, now seeing boomers, people younger than I do who have it, which is sobering, uh, yeah. is um, uh, that they had a sense of um, social purpose. They had a sense of the greater good. And to be in a trial, I always tell people, if you're going to walk in and say, oh, you're going to cure my Alzheimer's, doc, I go, mm, not really. First of all, we're going to try to slow it down, not stop it. Number two, um, if that's your goal, that's probably not a good idea, that what you really need to do is to do it for the greater good. Now, the greater good may be that 10 other members of your extended family going back two generations on both sides have had it, in which case everybody down the road has a very high risk, not a certainty, but a high risk of getting it. You may have friends who had it. You may have had a very good friend who had it. So you're taking one for the giver, that you're, you're taking one for the team. Yeah. And so I always tell people, you need to have that civic sense. What I will tell you is people that engaged in clinical trials are extremely monitored closely. So it's some of the best medical care you'll ever get because every time you burp, we need to know whether it's due to the drug or just you were going to burp anyway. Right. So... Uh, as a matter of fact, that's how the side effects get figured out when you look at the little two-point font sheet that comes with a new medication that came from the drug trials. So anyway, so I would want people to have a proper sense of why to get involved, proper meaning that they do it for the greater good as well as themselves. We certainly hope it helps them, obviously, but that cannot be the only goal. These are mostly double-blind placebo-controlled trials, meaning that me giving the drug and the person getting it doesn't know whether they're getting active drug or saltwater solution. These are IV drugs. And uh, it's done on purpose, so there's no cheerleader effect, the placebo effect. And for most trials, there's a period of time when you were on active drug or placebo, and after a year and a half, you get switched to active drug if you were on placebo, and you continue on active drug if you were on active drug. In other words, you don't go without something forever. The exception to that is in trials that are for people who do not have symptoms yet. And those trials are not crossover design. In other words, you're either on placebo or active drug for the entire time. And the reason for that is that you don't have a disease yet that's manifest right. by clinical symptoms. And if you do suddenly show some symptoms of worsening dementia, at that point, you can then get the symptomatic medications. I don't want to make it too complicated, but people say, how can they get in the trial? The name of the trial that's for family members who don't have any symptoms yet is called the AHEAD trial. Uh, we started doing clinical trials in Plymouth back uh, many years ago because it was very difficult for people to commute through Boston traffic to get to the teaching hospitals. To this day, I have colleagues at Mass General who will send me patients because they live down our way because it's just too hard to yeah. go in and out. So I'm in practice for 36 years in Plymouth. Um, uh, you can look me up. Uh, and, and call our office if you're interested in this. Uh, there are websites for the AHEAD trial if you want to look at it. It's A-H-E-A-D. And uh, uh, Is this a national? It's a national. Tra yeah. It's a national. Yes. This is we have national listeners really yes. all over. Yes. Uh, there are uh, about 50 trial centers. Most of them are academic centers. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a few of us that are not. Um, and we're very pleased to be able to offer this. Uh, and 
So anyway, the point is, is that it's readily accessible if you just with minimal effort look online at the AHEAD trial. There are also many, many other drug trials for people who already have symptoms, as I was alluding to earlier. We have this newest drug that was approved that I said is a bunt single, yeah. but if you want to see if you can get a double or a triple or even a home run, there are other drugs that are enrolling, and we strongly urge people to consider that. There are people who will say, no, I'll take the bunt single. Okay, but it's expensive, as we've talked about a little bit already. It's in a state of flux as to how that cost will come down and who will pay for it. I don't think anybody's going to be charged 56000 out of pocket to do it. Mm-hmm. So we'll see where that goes. Hmm. A-head, I like that. That's easy to remember. It makes right. sense. Right, exactly. It's for A-head. Yep. Get ahead. Yep. I it's, love it. It's and par- and every, all of the trials can be found through you, Dr. Marks, in Plymouth? Yes. And, and also, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, uh, it's the national website for all clinical trials. It's pretty easy to use. You just put in Alzheimer's, and it'll tell you tons of places that are doing trials of diff- different types of trials. Okay. So this may have answered the first question from the IM. So the IM, you know, has two rules. Because the four domains interconnect, your home, your social, the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me, in the biological domain, which we're talking a lot about tonight, small changes can have big effects. You don't need to change everything. Dr. Marks, what small change can you recommend to our listeners so that they can manage Alzheimer's if it's in their family? Well, I think the first thing is to realize that denial is not just a river in Egypt. That's right. And uh, that is the major impediment. And it's not just the families and the people who are exhibiting symptoms. It's the medical profession as well. The primary care doctors are busy. Some of them don't have the knowledge or interest to pursue this. You need to be your own advocate. Mm -hmm. But I would say that if if you're in your 60s, even late 50s, and having significant memory problems for reasons that you can't explain. Look, if you're not sleeping but two hours a night because you've got untreated sleep apnea from weighing 500 pounds over what you should, that's going to cause you to have memory impairment. Mm -hmm. But assuming that there's no clear reason for it, then you need to tell your doctor, look, I think that I'm having memory problems. Can you do some screening tests? And if the screening tests are positive, then ask that you be sent to the next step. Mm -hmm. Are are organizations like AARP or other things, would you recommend them? Are they helpful? Should people join up? Yes, the AARP is useful, but the biggest organization is the Alzheimer's Association. Mm -hmm. It has one of the deepest, widest, websites of any disease state I've ever seen, for that matter, any website. If you want to get into the weeds of arcane new research development, stuff that I work with and my peers who are involved in research work with, it's there. If you want just simpler things about how do I do this, how do I do that, uh, how do I handle this financial situation, how do I handle bathing uh, uh, with a more advanced patient, it's all in there. Wow. So what's what's that website again? It's the Alzheimer's Alzheimer's.org, I believe. Alzheimer's.org. Yeah. yeah. Really important, important yeah. resource for people. Yeah. The second truth of the I am, because everybody's interested in what other people think or feel about them and you're part of someone's home or social domain, it has an effect on the biological domain the way you see them because you know it feels differently if you're treated with respect or disrespect. You control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Marks. What kind of influence are you hoping to be? Doctor comes from the same root word as educator. And what I would hope to accomplish is to just increase people's awareness so they can then be enfranchised to take action on their own. 
that there's a certain amount of basic knowledge about the existence of this disease and where it's going in terms of our treatment that people just need to know exists. And if I can do anything to make that happen, if by telling whoever is listening to this what's going on and have them each tell somebody else, that's probably the best we can do. I do view a lot of this as retail, if you will. It's one-on-one. Mm -hmm. -on -one. uh, uh, I spend an hour and a half with a new Alzheimer's patient and their family. I do it in part because some of it is subsidized by the clinical research. It allows me to do it. It leads to a place where people feel that they're compassionately and completely cared for, that they're listened to, that we have time to address a multitude of questions, the sort of questions you guys were asking tonight, and it allows them to move forward and not to just be in panic. And I think that, you know, that's, that's what we try to accomplish. So there's hope. Mm. Oh, definitely. Would, would, so would you have said that 10 years ago? Oh, even 10 years ago I said there was hope, but the, tr the problem was is the hope was just beyond our grasp. Uh, what the hope is now is that given we're now going to do combination therapy where we'll be using this type of drug and maybe an anti-tau drug, as I talked about yeah. earlier, and it may be that the way forward is that by perhaps prematurely allowing the anti-amyloid drugs to be approved, that then will allow as an existing approved drug for another experimental drug to be added on because you won't be on two experimental drugs at the same time. So this is what we all have been hoping for for the last 10 years, and it's finally happening. It's happening. It's so exciting. So we started off talking about cancer and, and the difficulty all those years ago. People didn't talk about it, but now it looks like something's on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Thanks for leading the way with that and helping people. Really appreciate it. Thanks yes. for the opportunity. All right, folks. We'll be back next week with the Dr. Joe Show. Thanks, everybody. Go, 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 go.